Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. 
Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. Hey guys, it's Mishi. In our episode last week, we aired a story about Yona Elian, the anesthesiologist who sedated Adolf Eichmann as part of his capture back in 1960. And if you've been listening to Israel's story for years, you might recall that back in season 2, we aired another story related to Eichmann. If Yona Elian wanted to diminish his part in the Eichmann saga, the folks Shine Balin Katie Pulverman talked to back in 2016 wanted the exact opposite, to claim their place in the history books. These are the few people who interacted with Eichmann after he was captured and brought to Israel, the folks who guarded him, interrogated him, and even executed him. Israelis for whom the encounter with the Nazi officer wasn't just a moment of national catharsis. It was also an intimate experience, perhaps even too intimate. So, from the vault, we bring you a rerun of Katie and Shai's story from 2016, Herr Eichmann. I was 27 at the time, and I was serving in the border police. That's Amram Luski. Today, he's an 82-year-old retired grandpa of five who likes to pickle vegetables. But in 1960, he was a young cop, chosen for a very sensitive task. One day, I was summoned to the police national headquarters, and I was interviewed by Amos Ben-Gurion, the prime minister's son. He was actually the one who chose me. I remember Amos just said, you will be a part of this team. Amram had no idea what team he was joining. All he knew was what he had been told. As of today, you belong to a special unit which doesn't have a name. Tomorrow morning, you'll report for duty and you'll tell your wives that you don't know when you'll be back home. Amram agreed. Then, in one night, we made an entire prison for one prisoner. The next day, when he heard who it was he would be guarding, Amram wasn't too impressed. He had emigrated from Morocco at a young age and knew very little about the Holocaust. You see, I came from a community that didn't suffer at the hands of the Nazis. Everything we knew came from the radio or from what we heard from the rabbi in synagogue. And don't forget, I was only a kid during the war. So when they told me, this is the Nazi criminal Adolf Eichmann, I didn't even know who Adolf Eichmann was. I remember the first time I saw him as if it were yesterday. I saw this pale, scrawny guy. He was about my father's age and was wearing these military-issued clothes the IDF had given him. Another one of the guards, Shalom Nagar, who was born in Yemen, also couldn't really imagine his mild and polite prisoner as a heartless monster. He had this presence. I thought, what a righteous man. When I would take him to the restroom, I'd chain his legs. When I would take them off, he'd say, thank you, in Spanish, gracias. You didn't feel that he was 
cruel. He, he was calm. He was sitting in his corner, he had a desk, a chair, and all day long he would write, either write or read. He had a bed next to him, and if he was tired, he would go to bed and sleep. That's it. These two men, the German SS lieutenant colonel and the Yemenite Jewish prison guard, didn't really have a common language. I couldn't teach him Yemeni Arabic, and he wasn't successful in teaching me German. So he communicated with me through hand gestures. As a result, there was little communication between Eichmann and his guards. It was absolutely forbidden to talk to him. Here and there, we would sneak in a few words. But mainly, we just kept quiet. All of this was, of course, by design. Guys like Amram and Shalom were selected to guard Eichmann precisely because they had no personal connection to the Holocaust. They wouldn't try to engage the prisoner in conversation or, and this was a real concern at the time, try to hurt him. In fact, Eichmann was such a high-profile prisoner, and the anxiety surrounding his well-being so great that even the guards were closely monitored. I mean, they didn't want to take any chances. Just imagine what would have happened if in some moment of madness a guard would have killed Eichmann. So we guarded him without a rifle, without any blunt instrument that could endanger him. They'd search us before we went into the cell, make us to take off our belts, just like him, really. It didn't take long for Amram and Shalom to learn all about the man they were charged with guarding. Reports about Eichmann appeared daily, in print, on the radio. The more we learned about him, the more we learned about what he had done and about how bad he was, we began hating him. I personally hated his guts. But in the cell, I always smiled at him. When he wasn't in his cell, Eichmann was being interrogated, endlessly. During the first nine months of his imprisonment in Israel, he was cross-examined by the members of the 06 Bureau, a special police unit set up for the purpose of collecting all the information needed for Eichmann's trial. One of the 14 06 investigators was Michael Goldman Gilad. He'd actually left the police two years earlier and was just getting used to civilian life when he heard Ben-Gurion's announcement on the radio. When Ben-Gurion told in the Knesset that Eichmann is here, that we brought him from Argentine, I sent a letter to the chief inspector of the police that I am ready to be in the special unit which will investigate Adolf Eichmann. And he told me that it's impossible to be only for a time for investigation in this unit, I have to return to the police. So I return to the police. Michael can't forget the first time he saw the man responsible for sending his parents, sister, and brother to their deaths. I remember exactly. When I saw him sitting in front of me for the first time, when he opened his mouth, 
I had the feeling that I see the gates of the crematorium open. It was my first feeling. Avner Les, a Berlin native, served as Eichmann's chief interrogator. This is him in a recording from those interrogation sessions. Les clocked more than 275 hours with Eichmann, going over questions that the whole 06 team had prepared. They taped all the sessions and took meticulous notes. For Les, this work was personal. Most of his family had been killed in the Holocaust. That's why he was reluctant at first to take on the task of interrogating Eichmann. He didn't really want to revisit the horrors of the past. And in the end, my mother asked him to do this work because her parents were killed in the Holocaust. That's alone Les, Abner's son, who now lives in Switzerland. He told us over the phone about his father, who died in 1987. He was a very relaxed man, quiet and polite. He had to get everything he could out of Eichmann. Most of the Zero Six team had close ties to the Holocaust. Miki Reich, for example, was added mainly because he'd been in the camps. I did not know anything about Eichmann. I knew nothing. When you're in a concentration camp, You have no radio, no newspaper, and you don't care what is happening. You have one worry, survive another day. They all say Eichmann was smart and manipulative. He realized that most of his interrogators were survivors. In summer, because we were were not in uniform, and he saw from time to time my number on on my arm. And uh, of course he didn't ask or didn't say something, nothing. And some of my colleagues in this unit, they were also ex-Auschwitz prisoners with number. But I was sure that he, in his mind, how I had not the possibility to kill him before. Eichmann famously claimed that he was a mere cog in the Nazi machine, just a bureaucrat following orders, a paper pusher. Eichmann said during one of his conversations with Les, Look, I know the end of me. I only want you to trust me. To me, Hitler was a legislator. If you put out a law that ordered the execution of every person over the age of 50, I, with my own hands, would have killed my parents. This was his line. I follow orders and know with a personal initiative. Michael didn't buy this line of defense. We knew that he is a liar. The extensive evidence they gathered painted a wholly different picture. But also in the uh, Nuremberg trial, there were some SS officers that gave testimony against him, and they told that he was an initiator. He, he hated Jews fanatically. He knew that uh, he did his job with gusto. Throughout the questioning, Les played the role of the good cop. He insisted that no one raise their voice at Eichmann and that everyone treat him with respect. Eichmann thought my father was a polite Jew, stupid. He thought he could tell him anything and he wouldn't know, wouldn't understand. But my dad just manipulated him that way, really got him to say everything. 
Playing along with this calm, civilized charade, Eichmann would call Michael Herr Hauptmann. Herr Hauptmann is nicht wie bei allen Behörden. German for Mr. Captain, referring to his military rank. For me, it was difficult because I had to be very strictly and official, not to ask him personal questions, etc., and only to see him as an object for what we have to do. Les's orders caused some tension within the 06 team. He was the permanent investigator. He was a really gentleman. I was not such a gentleman with Eichmann. Michael got particularly incensed when he heard Les call Eichmann Herr Eichmann. Sir Eichmann. Herr? Michael leapt out of his seat. It's the highest calling. They called us dogs, fleas, lice, and other such names. And you sit in front of him, and you are questioning him, and you tell him, Herr? So after I made a scene, an order was issued by the head of the unit to stop calling him Herr. Hey, it's Mishi. We'll get back to the story in just a minute. But I wanted to make sure that you all know about our newsletter. Some of you, we recently learned, weren't even aware of the fact that we have one. Well, we do. And it's a great way to stay up to date. Want Israel Story delivered right to your inbox? Want special behind-the-scenes photos and staff recommendations? Want to be the first to know about our live shows and presentations and public talks? Go to israelstory.org newsletter and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Kotel HaMishpachot, the egalitarian Kotel. As you know, here at Israel Story, we've spent a lot of time this season thinking about the Kotel. And I can wholeheartedly recommend that next time you visit Jerusalem, you check out the egalitarian Kotel for Kabbalat Shabbat. You'll have the opportunity of welcoming in Shabbat at the most symbolic of Jewish locations and doing so with a beautiful service, alongside your spouse, daughters, sons, granddaughters, grandsons. As the sun sets over Jerusalem, everyone is together, singing stunning melodies and partaking in a traditional service. The Tfilot at Robinson's Arch, on the southern end of the Kotel, take place at 6 p.m. during the summer and 4 p.m. during the winter. For more information, go to ezratisrael.com. That's E-Z-R-A-T-I-S-R-A-E-L dot com. Okay, back to our story. At the end of the investigation, in April of 1961, everything was set for the start of Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem's district court. He was accused of 15 different charges, including crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes against the Jewish people. One of the three presiding judges, Moshe Landoy, read the indictment in front of a packed courtroom. Outside, the entire country was glued to the radio. Adolf Eichmann. He ordered Eichmann to stand up. Are you Adolf? He asked. Son of Adolf Karl Eichmann? Yes, Eichmann answered. Standing up in his famous bulletproof glass booth, with Israeli guards at his side, Eichmann listened, almost expressionless, to a simultaneous translation of the charges. Did you understand the charges? Yes. 
האם אתה מודה או אינך מודה? When Landoy asked him to enter a plea, Eichmann replied, In the spirit of the accusation, not guilty. The judges rejected Eichmann's defense. 56 court days and 112 witnesses later, on December 15, 1961, Landoy handed down an unprecedented sentence. In a country that had never executed a soul, Eichmann was going to be the first. The story that had a grim preface in the horror of Nazi concentration camps comes to an equally grim end in Israel, as Adolf Achmann is sentenced for his crimes against humanity. In his bulletproof booth, Eichmann sits stoically as the charges are summed up. The judges then call on the defendant to stand as they pass their sentence. The end of a trail of blood and horror, the end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Some people, both in Israel and abroad, opposed Eichmann's death sentence. One of them was Levi Eshkol, who just a year later became Israel's prime minister. He thought it would be better if Eichmann wandered the world bearing the mark of Cain. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber added his signature to a letter from Israeli intellectuals to President Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, expressing their concern over Israel's moral character and international image should Eichmann's execution go through. But they were in the minority. Most Israelis heavily favored the hanging, and President Ben-Zvi rejected the idea of a pardon. May On May 31st, Shalom was already on his way home after a long shift. A car pulled up next to him. It was his commander. We're one person short, he said. You need to come. Shalom got in the car and they drove to the Ramla prison where Eichmann was held. Michael Goldman Gilad, who was appointed to be the police representative at the hanging, was waiting for them there. It was... A Thursday night, we were together, ten men inside. We stand near to him, about one, one and a half meter. There were four journalists. One of them was a German journalist, a priest. He was together with him also before, because he wanted him to confess. And the priest told us after what happened. Eichmann told him, I have no time for stupidity, nothing, not one word. And then the priest who stand near to me told him so quietly, say Jesus, say Jesus, and no answer. And then he told, I believe in God and I died believing in God. In this moment, I told to myself, which is his God. I came with the commander. We wrapped the rope around his 
his neck. He began to speak. What I remember, long live Germany, long live Argentine, long live Austria. I only did by orders and blah, blah, blah. By the rules, his face should be covered. But he didn't want us to do it. We told him, okay, it's up to you if you don't want it, but it would be a shame. We wrapped the rope, and there was a table. The table had a button. The police officer said one word, pe'al, in Hebrew, do it. I pushed on the button. This opened the two shutters he was standing on, and he fell. Within a few minutes, Eichmann was pronounced dead, but there was no sigh of relief in the room, just a quiet sense of emptiness. I didn't feel nothing, no, no revenge. It, it don't exist revenge about was what they did to us. I was sure that he have to receive his punishment about what he did, not more. I'm sure that only God can take revenge. It is impossible to hang him six million times. Shalom was deeply disturbed. I saw his face, his white face. His eyes were open wide from suffocation. I thought his eyes would swallow me at that moment. And his tongue dropped down to his stomach. I just saw him and I was scared. I ran away from the guys who were there. The commander told me, Nagar, come here. I told him, leave me alone, sir. I don't feel well. He told me, come and finish your work. But when he thinks about it today, Shalom is grateful to his commander for forcing him to come back. The Torah says, For I will completely erase all memory of Amalek from the face of the earth. I got my own living Amalek. The group carried Eichmann's body to a special furnace built by a Holocaust survivor whose family had been burnt in the crematoriums. Eichmann's ashes were placed in a milk jug. A milk jug of two liter. I was shocked to see how little ashes is from a man, together with his clothes. Then we went to Jaffa, to the port of Jaffa, with the jack in a police boat. And after six miles of Jaffa, the chief of all prisons in Israel, together with me, we opened the jack and we put the ashes on the, on the sea. In a way, this marked the end of the saga, which forever changed the way Israelis talked about the Holocaust. But for that small group of people who interacted with the Nazi commander, it never really ended. Miki Reish, the 06 interrogator who had survived the camps, looks back with great satisfaction. I think it was the most difficult job in my life, and I thank God for choosing me. Shalom Nagar, on the other hand, was initially scarred by the experience. Truth be told, 
I remained fearful for a few months. I don't know what happened to me. I was in the paratroopers and everything, but I was afraid of him. He was in my dreams. After a few months, maybe a year, this whole mess left me. That was it. Avner Les, the chief interrogator, left Israel in 1968. He settled down in Switzerland and continued writing about Eichmann until his death in 1987. As he held the empty jug and looked out at the sea on his way back into Israel's territorial waters, Michael Goldman-Gilad's thoughts wandered back to the day the war ended. I was in the military hospital when it was the 8th of May, when the war was end, and they came to hospital crying and singing. They came to each one who with a small glass of vodka. I remember that one told me, you, you know we will go at home to our parents, to our family, and I told him, that I have no home, no parents, nobody. We were three children at home. A, a brother, he was older than me, and a sister, she was 10 when they killed her. Only two cousins, they survived. Of course, I was very happy that the war was end, but I, I was not happy because I knew that I was alone. I remember that in the same moment when we put the ashes on the sea, I said a sentence of the prophetess of Deborah. Ko yavdu kol oivecha Israel. So will die all your enemies, O Lord. It came on the moment. I was very uh, relieved. I was very relieved. I saw the end of one of them. So it was the sunshine, we saw the fisher, they came back from the fishing. We saw children, they went to the school. It was a new day, a calm day. Katie Pulverman. That piece was produced together with Scheinbal. A special thanks to our team of dubbers, Yuval Or, Roy Brazilai, Shlomo Meital, and Chanoch Litterman. If you enjoyed that piece, we highly recommend the film Lishka Efeshish, Bureau 06, The Architects of the Trial, about the team that interrogated Eichmann. We'll be back very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, Shalom Shalom, and Yalla Bye. Rechot lilac, Anashim Shay Shlomaki 
אין אפילו בית שיזכיר. ואם את נוסעת, לאן את נוסעת? הנצח הוא רק אפר time inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply